looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. on everybody this is wrong real episode 478 podcast for hardcore cinephiles we're tackling everything from Jean-Luc Godard to Jean-Luc Picard and today we're going into the world of manga and anime with Victor Rodriguez a man who wears a lot of hats from talent manager to writer to music supervisor and soundtrack producer and film television and a variety of really cool video games and I'm just going to go ahead and thank you right from the word go for exposing me to the world of Berserk because it is one of my favorite fantasy and horror experiences I've had in a very long time. And I can't wait to sink our teeth into this topic. But, but Victor, welcome to Wrong Real. Thank you, sir. Uh, it's my pleasure to be here. And uh, hey, it's the least I could do. Uh, I've been listening to Wrong Real for at least a year now. And you have definitely turned me on to a lot of really cool stuff. Uh, Succession is a show. Oh, that, man, I uh, love Succession. Hell yeah. <laughs> I'm all caught up with it. Um, it's it's awesome. Uh, the Bounty recently, um, your your show, and, and uh, the graphic novel Velvet. Um, oh, yeah, uh, are that all was killer. That, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I would not have heard about uh, were it not for this show. So uh, it's the least I can do. Well, that's when we know things are flowing in the world of Wrong Real, and we're all sharing recommendations for really cool shit, but for someone who has such a comprehensive resume on so many different fronts, help people who maybe don't know who you are from Twitter, just kind of walk us through your background because I, mean, I see things like Hellbound, Hellraiser 2 on your resume, and I think you see things like God of War, and I also see you love writing fiction, and you love traveling the world, so who is Victor Rodriguez for the, uh, for the unfamiliar, the unconverted? Well, um, long story short, uh, I... Uh, right out of school, I had a job at New World Entertainment, um, Roger Corman's old company, and um, it was transferring over to TV mainly in those days. They're still making movies, and uh, the first two things I worked on were a Crime Story, that uh, Michael Mann show, and um, cool Hellbound. Show. Oh, and yeah, so, Hellraiser. So Hellbound right out of the gate. Wow. We the talked about first. that with Sky Wingfield maybe like a year or two ago. We did the entire Hellraiser saga. And I have to say, like, wow, I think the second half of that movie, it kind of flies off the rails. The first half, 
really is disturbing and messed up in so many ways. I mean, it, it has lost none of its power since the day of its release. I was absolutely floored by how strong some of that early stuff was. Yeah, um, well, you know, I had uh, a, a, a small hand in uh, in the production of that of that movie, but um, it was my introduction to working with composers, and I've always loved music. I was brought up uh, on classical music and then discovered, you know, rock, uh, hip-hop, and uh, punk on my own, and um, I was just, a, you know, a music nerd, and I always wanted to work with composers after that, and I still do. Uh, I manage a composer <laughs> based in L.A., and... Um, I obviously I listen to composers twenty four seven, especially movie soundtracks. Have you and Stephen Simpson had a chance to talk about your mutual love of movie soundtracks, or, or uh, Jay Blake Fischer? I mean, there are a lot of guys on our, in our circle of friends that are just rabid enthusiasts and consumers of movie soundtracks. Yeah, I can tell, um, but uh, but no, I haven't I haven't had a chance to uh, connect with him yet. But uh, but I, I'm sure I soon will. Absolutely. Um, but uh, yeah, long story short, uh, so I worked um, in production for film and TV for a few years. Uh, then I transferred over to the music uh, label side of the business. Um, I worked for a music publisher for a while, then a record label, and uh, then I transferred over to the gaming side of the business. Uh, exporting composer or importing composers and licensed music into the games uh, for Sony PlayStation. And uh, from there, I went to head up audio at a video game company called THQ for a few years. So, yeah, I mean, I had a PlayStation 2 from, I think, 2001 to 2006. And when God of War came along, I think I basically smoked a truckload of weed and just lost myself in that world for a couple of weeks. But it's one of the rare examples of something really cool being done with Greek mythology. And perhaps it's not necessarily a traditional take on the Greek mythology kind of shared continuity, but it uses some of the icons and some of the monsters so well. And just the flavor is precisely what you want from a movie, show, novel, whatever, based on that world. So I completely got sucked in. I know, obviously, there have been a lot of God of War games since then, and has a huge rabid fan base. For whatever reason, that was the one that I played. But I played it through to completion, and it just uh, it definitely had my attention for the duration. I'm so glad. I'm so glad you liked it. That was um, that was a, a labor of love by by many of us for <laughs> for about... I don't know, five years, the production cycle, um, we just eat, uh, breathed, and slept God of War. And um, it was uh, really fun to play. I actually, I, I worked on it so long, but I still didn't get burned out on, on it enough to play through the whole game. And uh, I loved being a music supervisor on that project. So, um, yeah, I had a chance to work with a, a gang of composers on there. And um, it really loved the um, the game itself. Uh, David Jaffe, the, the game's director, uh, was a huge fan of the animated uh, film Heavy Metal. So, gotcha. um, so am I. Yeah, it's a great flick. Yeah, it, it, it kind of makes sense that there there's some connective tissue there between God of War and, and Heavy Metal. And uh, as a matter of fact, for a while, uh, we were toying around with the idea of having a Heavy Metal music soundtrack uh, for the game. It would have fit. Uh, it certainly would have fit. I mean, you can go, you could go a variety of ways, but it, it, it wouldn't have clashed with the overall tone of the experience. Right. It, we found that it worked great for uh, very short bursts of time, but then it started to kind of wear on the ear uh, gotcha. after a while. So we shifted to kind of a classical score, which is what you hear in the game. Yeah, it's one of those rare examples where you have giant muscles and battle axes and sorcery and monsters and abundant nudity. And it's one of the things where so many people love stirring all those ingredients together, but we have so few examples 
that do it really well. I mean, Conan the Barbarian's a great example. Heavy Metal's a great example. God of War's a great example. And what we're going to be talking about today, Berserk, is absolutely <laughs> a great example. Now, these days, with you, when it comes to your fiction writing, are you dabbling with teleplays or screenplays? Or are you mostly really into short stories and novels and that sort of thing? I, uh, I had one experience writing uh, a teleplay. Um, I sold it, um, and it was for a project that never got made, uh, and I was paid handsomely for it. But um, one thing I noticed from the script writing experience was that when the sole writer finishes the project for the first time and he hands it over to the producers, they have it rewritten, and it becomes part of a process where it becomes completely unrecognizable after that. So I had the money in my pocket, and that was great, but um, uh, I was uh, not too pleased with the fact that it totally didn't resemble my original work uh, at the end. And that's why I fell in love with writing prose, because the rules uh, in um, publishing fiction are that uh, you have complete control as the writer. Um, so basically, you're, you're the writer and the director and the showrunner of your written work. Uh, and sadly, there's not a whole lot of money in the <laughs> in the process. But uh, that's the payoff is the creative control. Now, who are you reading these days? Because I, I wasn't even really aware of this until like in the last year or so, how in the last 10, 15, 20 years that the fantasy genre has enjoyed this huge boom and surge of extraordinary authors. And I don't know how well these books are selling, but I just keep discovering all these new authors. Like right now I'm reading um, Mark Lawrence's Broken Empire trilogy. I'm about to start the third. It's all, it, it dovetails nicely with Berserk in terms of the uh, the overall tone and approach. And it almost feels like Berserk is in a weird way, like a Japanese adaptation of like <laughs> of the Broken Empire trilogy. But is there anybody right now who's really jumping out at you that really just uh, just strikes a chord with what you're looking for in fiction? Yeah, um, and, and uh, you know, for uh, another Berserk tie-in, um, you know, I... Uh, I used to read a lot in school, obviously, uh, and then uh, when I started working full time um, and working Hollywood hours, I uh, sort of, my reading really dwindled down to reading just magazine articles and, uh, and whatever was online. Yeah, um, but uh, this composer uh, friend of mine um, turned me on to a writer named Joe Abercrombie. Oh, I love, I've read the first two of his uh, First Law trilogy, and they're fucking amazing. They are great. Uh, and he got me back into reading novels again. And uh, after that, I picked up George R. R. Martin, Song of Ice and Fire, and I just started going. But to answer your question, uh, I am currently reading Pat Barker, a novel called The Silence of the Girls, which is um, a feminist retelling of the Iliad from um, a Perseus point of view. Yeah. Um, it's very well written. Um, and... Uh, it still has all the Iliad stuff going on in the background, which I love. So um, I, now, I'm loving how, it. What was her read on the initial catalyst of the event where you have these three goddesses competing for uh, attention? Because it, it all boils down to that initial contest. Uh, you know, I, I really love the way she handled this. Um, she uh, treats the characters as being skeptical about the gods because uh, there's really no proof. Although, you know, Achilles is supposedly descended from a goddess. Uh, and... Um, uh, it supposedly exists, and they pray to them because that's what their culture demands of them. But they're not counting on the gods' intervention. Gotcha. So, so it's not like you have actual gods coming down and participating in battles or guiding the hands of the characters and things like that? 
yeah, it's it's a more of a gritty modern approach. Although they like like the the TV series Rome on HBO, you know they they try to get into the realism of it as much as possible. Okay, interesting. Gotcha. Well, I keep hoping someone will come along and just give us the Iliad the way I want to see it, where the gods are real, they intervene, all hell's breaking loose. I want like the full blown God of War Iliad treatment writ large, like with a four hundred billion dollar budget, but. I don't know if that's even possible, but that's a beautiful thing about if you're into prose and fiction is that writers can cook up the most astonishing worlds imaginable and they never have to worry about budgetary constraints. And it's just the imagination is allowed to run amok, which maybe is a great way to kind of start veering into the topic at hand. So for people out there who don't read manga and are unaware of the role this plays, there's an overall kind of cultural significance for manga buffs and manga fans who wrote it, who drew it, how did it get started, and um, later we can start dipping our toes into some of the animated adaptations. Yeah, uh, well, Berserk is the um, is the baby of uh, a Japanese artist and writer named Kentaro Mura, uh, and um, I uh, I came in a bit late to the franchise. Like I started reading it when I was working on God of War, so it was probably around 2002 when I uh, when I picked up the the manga, but um, he started it in 1988. Uh, so this is a 30-year-old ongoing manga franchise uh, that has been, uh, as you said, adapted into various movies, TV, video games. Um, hugely popular in Japan, fairly popular here in the States, um, but uh, I hadn't heard of it until my buddy John sat, me and a few of uh, other of us sat, uh, sat down in front of his TV and he was like, hey, check out this... Uh, this animated TV series I've got called Berserk. And um, first couple episodes seemed pretty typical, and then it launched into the emotional uh, arc of the uh, the Golden Age, and I was completely hooked. And then I went back and I read all the books, and I've seen all the movies and all that stuff since. Yeah, I had a similar experience. When you recommended this, I already owned the first three manga, but I'd kind of given them a I'd essentially skimmed them just looking for provocative imagery because Tony Stella and a few other people online have been talking about it. I was like, oh, I should take a crack at it. But if you only read the first three, you only get one chapter of the Golden Age, which is at the very end of the third one. And this the, the Golden Age is this sprawling giant saga with these extraordinary characters. It's almost like starts out as like a little flashback about the origins of this central character that you're already pretty familiar with. And then it goes for like 11 books. And these books are like 300 pages a pop. And I was like, wow, this is the biggest, longest, most comprehensive flashback I've ever seen. But obviously he knew where he was going. He already had a roadmap because it comes full circle because you've already been introduced to characters like the God Hand and Griffith prior to this extraordinary climax, which comes during the 13th volume. And I, I was DMing you like a madman about this uh, as I was reading, but I just could not believe how good it got. It like. The older I get, the more I want my entertainment to be really extreme. If something's funny, I want to like shit my pants with laughter. If it's terrifying, I want it to turn my hair white and just like wreck me. And when I want dark fantasy, I want it to go to the craziest extremes imaginable. But nothing could have prepared me for where this story goes. I, my, my jaw just kept dropping lower and lower. I couldn't believe the scope and the scale and the horror and the eroticism and also just the sense of betrayal and the emotions between these three central characters. It just fucking floored me and it's everything that I look for in comics that I still rarely find 
Yeah, I, I that was my experience exactly as well. Um, yeah, Mira does not pull any punches, and uh, there's a few of those punches that are right to the gut of the reader. I mean, it is insane. Cowboy boot to the nuts, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, what's interesting is that before Berserk, uh, this is rarely encountered in the literary world or anywhere else in entertainment. Um, uh, he was one of the first, and uh, I think that there were some elements that he picked up on in uh, a few movies that he may have seen in the early 80s like when about, fantasy was what about Rotsuka Doji when, what year did that with that uh, manga se- uh, anime series I know there are five of them but I, I think they're roughly the same period I, I do know of it um, I haven't ever seen that but I believe it was mid 80s okay uh, yeah, I've seen the first that- one and it's demonic and it's sexual but it has none of the depth of something like Berserk. Like it's got all the superficial shock value and it's tons of fun to watch. I mean, it's absolutely, if you put it on in a party, people are going to be shocked and it'll, it'll do the trick, but it doesn't have the emotional weight of Berserk. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, Berserk is a very deep literary work. Um, and uh, there, what's, I think one of the things that's so fucking cool about it is that you have uh, the golden age arc, which pretty much stands alone or it can stand alone as a, a very deep dramatic, arc that kind of centers more around drama uh, and uh, and action um, with a little bit of horror sprinkled in, especially uh, towards the end. Um, but uh, it also provides, it's like a pillar of, um, of, of plot in these several arcs that, that come in, in the manga story. So uh, Mira starts it with the Black Swordsman arc, and this is sort of a frame um, to put the Golden Age uh, within, uh, which you said. So Golden Age happens as a flashback. So we know that the protagonist, Guts, survives, um, but we don't know how he got there. Um, so uh, the whole Golden Age is the telling of, and, and Mira is a fantastic visual storyteller. The only people I can think of that have impressed me that much as visual storytellers uh, are John Borman and... Uh, um, uh, man, uh, Stanley Kubrick. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, when you first see Guts, he's this kind of edgy anti-hero type dude dressed all in black. He's got a huge sword. Yeah, like uh, if you like if you like the Dark Souls games and you like using the great swords, imagine the biggest great sword you've ever wielded in those games, and that's how he rolls. <laughs> yes, indeed, it, it's it's great. It's it's uh, basically an extension of him. Like the the more skilled and stronger he gets, the bigger his sword gets. The the bigger he just wants the biggest weapon around. He's always doing reps like all day, just like one, two. He does like a hundred reps a day, just swinging it up and down. Like starting out relatively small as a kid, but God, those swords just keep getting bigger and heavier and more powerful. And I just watching him wield it. It's it almost works better as a club and kind of like knocking people aside, but obviously it's sharp and will chop people up as well. But it is so much fun watching him just whip this thing because he whips it around like a fencer with like a rapier, even though it probably weighs like eight hundred pounds. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you know, he's uh, he's a complete badass, and um, and I think that it suits his character perfectly um, because uh, he is uh, an existential. An example of an existential uh, uh, hero, um, or anti-hero, I should say. Uh, but um, basically, his meaning for existence starts out uh, in the Golden Age arc very hazy. Like, he really just craves combat, and he's sort of searching for his inner self in that combat. But uh, uh, then he meets uh, Griffith and the Band of the Hawk, and they become his friends. And suddenly, he's part of a unit, uh, and he incorporates that in his personality 
And uh, uh, that's sort of um, one of the, the building blocks of, of Guts as, as we go forward. Um, so, you know, this character is very deceptively simple at the beginning. But um, uh, like I was saying, uh, when you first see him, all the scars and um, uh, even missing body parts on, on his body, there's a story behind every one. And yeah. during the Golden missing Age... Missing eye, missing hand. I mean, his hand is this kick-ass crossbow cannon hybrid thing, and he's got black armor all over, and he's, yeah, he's missing his right eye. And you can tell he's got a lot of emotional scars, and he's really pissed off at these creatures called acolytes. You're not quite sure why, but he's systematically hunting down these demonic individuals that are just like a plague across the country. Yes, indeed. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the Golden Age is a slow burn at first, um, but it starts gearing up, and soon we get to find out through other flashbacks and the events of the Golden Age how Guts got every scar, why the series is called Berserk, <laughs> and, um, you know, why he's wandering around alone at the beginning of the series. Now, I've barely explored the story beyond the Golden Age story because I I mean seasons one and two of the 2016 manga adaptation explore events after that and I've got volumes 14 15 16 I've got 17 on the way so I've I've read a little bit afterwards but it seems like for most of the hardcore fans the golden age arc is like the core of this story it's the bread and butter and it's kind of it's the foundation upon which every other subplot is built but are there other arcs down the road for me to look forward to that are particular favorites for you yeah, um, I think that uh, the Golden Age and the, the bit that comes after that, which is called the Conviction Arc, um, are basically just the start of Guts' character development. And um, he becomes an extremely three-dimensional, very well-rounded character um, by the current, uh, I think they're on volume 40 or 39 right now. Um, I don't know, there's usually a delay um, uh, from when it's done in Japan uh, to when it reaches uh, U.S. audiences as translated. And is Mira still on the book at this point? He's still on the book. Um, he, uh, like uh, like many great fantasy writers, he takes these super long hiatuses, <laughs> but um, he always returns to it. As far as I know, he's only done one other graphic novel, uh, which I haven't read, um, but he's been working on Berserk <laughs> since 1988. <laughs> That's incredible. So I know it started out in magazines and then slowly but surely started getting leaked out, but... I mean, if you think about it, I mean, 40 volumes, and they're a couple hundred pages each. Yeah, it's, 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 he's an incredibly prolific guy. I feel like there's so much complexity to the number of characters and so much going on that you can really sink your teeth into it and savor it. I feel like there are plenty of fantasy experiences that are pretty superficial, and you can just kind of rip right through them. But I just love the world building here and the, the, the enormous cast of characters and the interconnectivity between all the various acolytes and their histories and... Just the more you explore, the more you want to learn. Because initially when I first started watching, I was watching the 1997 adaptation and reading the manga at the same time. And it just was overwhelming initially because there's just so much information and so much to sink your teeth into. But once you kind of get a toehold and you're familiar with a little bit of what's going on, then it's just you get overwhelmed with this insatiable curiosity to learn as much about this world as humanly possible. Yeah, uh, and um, and like you said uh, at the top of the show, uh, Mira knows exactly what he's doing. Uh, I have a feeling that he had at least sketched out in his head the first four or five arcs um, when he started the series. Um, we now it's had to because the Griffith and the Hawk and everything—it's all fully formed with the God Hand in Volume Two and Three, like ready, ready to go. It's, I mean, it's perfectly foreshadowing things that are happen ten volumes later. Yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, and I think that the the the, the huge emotional blows uh, and changes come in those first two arcs. Uh, you know, the Black Swordsman and the Golden Age arc, 
And then after that, it's basically a process of Guts rebuilding himself with his life experience that we now know. Uh, so it's it's very deftly written, and of course, uh, as an artist, man, um, Mira starts out great, and he just gets better and better. Uh, the detail is just completely insane in these things. There's no wasted space. I mean, I remember as a little kid, that's one of the first things to teach you in art class, you know, like, fill the page because I would draw I, would, I love drawing like my He-Man figures my G.I. Joe figures or my favorite superheroes fighting but it was basically like two figures with a big giant blank background and the teacher was like why don't you put something and I'm like no it's these two guys they're fighting like don't you get it but you look at a like a double page splash page by Mura and it's like there's no white on here like the, it's so dense and so three dimensional and such extraordinary depth of field and so much movement and so much action it's dizzying how much detail he's able to cram into two pages yeah, I, I think like you, I have the um, the small the small books. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, absolutely. But that, that's the way they're meant to be consumed. I mean, that, that's the that's the original way they were they were marketed. I agree, and also uh, I'm kind of running out of space here at the uh, Strange High House in the Mist. So uh, you know, uh, I like having small items that uh, occupy my shelf space. But uh, they have started to publish these super deluxe volumes, and I'm kind of tempted to pick one up just to see the the large art. Um, in them. Yeah, I guess you can also go on Comixology and you can buy them and you can like, if you really want to zoom in. So I've, I've bought a few of the different volumes on my iPad just to have them with me because I was like reading them on the subway and things like that. And you really, you can zoom in and really take in all that detail. But I remember I went, when I was in Kyoto in 2007, I went to the Manga Museum and the entire museum just filled with those little books. It's not like they have like a big 10 by 20 foot mural with like all this artwork. Like, nope, it's just a, it's basically just a glorified library on steroids of people of all ages reading stories of all genre. Now, for Americans, I feel like most people don't read comics, period, but even hardcore comic book readers in America are largely unfamiliar with manga. But give people an idea of the popularity of manga in terms of the different genres, the different age groups in Japan, because I think most Americans have zero appreciation for just how widespread the, the love and adoration of manga can be in that country. Yeah, it, it certainly is. It's a cultural uh, milestone uh, for them, and it's it's very wi widely uh, respected, and, and um, uh, adults and children enjoy uh, manga and anime. Um, there seems to be a bit of progress here on the U.S. side lately, like with Disney sort of hitting it out of the park with all these animated movies. But um, there was a while there in the 80s, like when Akira came out, um, that uh, U.S. audiences were exposed to like super high developed uh, quality uh, anime and manga. And, and it sort of took a, a foothold in, in American culture. And I think that one of the things that kind of binds the two cultures, the U.S. and Japanese culture together when it comes to manga is the sense of humor. Like the Japanese sense of humor seems to be very translatable to Americans. Uh, and I think that's part of the reason why Berserk has enjoyed some success uh, here on stateside. Yeah, I mean, because as much as I might respond to you know, these giant demonic entities murdering entire armies and all this crazy sexual shit that's going on, there are still little elves like flying around and saying silly things or little boys who are like, you know, just like mischievous little thieves that just want to be gut sidekicks. So there's a ton of levity scattered throughout like every, every step of the way. It never gets completely lost in the darkness like a movie like Hellraiser. Not a lot of humor in Hellraiser, but obviously, as you pointed out, and it never even occurred to me as I was reading and watching it, but Hellraiser and the Cenobites clearly is a massive influence on this story. 
Yeah, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that Berserk was written one year after Hellraiser came out. Like, I'm pretty sure Mira went into the movie theater, saw that, and it blew his mind. And he was like, I'm going to have some uh, Cenobite elements in my fantasy story. But the guy you know, didn't uh, eat the Cenobites for breakfast. He's like, I'm taking the Cenobites, and I'm going to give them, like, cosmic level power like the living tribunal in marvel comics <laughs> right uh, no but one like one really interesting commonality between the the cenobites and the um the apostles and the god hand is that uh they were all human once yep. um which uh, eventually you discover in the uh, in in the books uh and um you have to sacrifice it, something you love but eventually you can slowly but surely make that transformation from human to something quite more Right. Yeah, it's a uh, it's an existential, uh, realistic world, um, but there are superpowered beings in it that were once human. Um, so that's that's sort of what you're getting into uh, if you uh, start getting into Berserk. Yeah, and that's one of the things I've always really loved about Marvel comics and Greek mythology as a kid is seeing these cosmic level entities and regular humans interacting. And so characters like the Skull Knight and characters like Zed. It's so I'm Zod seeing all these really powerful characters and also just like little little children and insignificant humans all interacting in the same drama it just keeps it fresh keeps it exciting but maybe the best way to start dissecting some of the story is talking about the 1997 adaptation as well as the 2012-2013 trilogy that covers essentially the same events but as someone who's been familiar with this franchise for quite some time how would you, um, I guess, categorize or describe the fan base for the 1990s? Because I've read a lot of very strong opinions online that people have about the different iterations. And there's a lot of debate amongst the hardcore fans. And as a, a neophyte, as a newcomer to this world, I don't want to swing my wrecking ball too aggressively about which ones I think are the, uh, the strongest iterations. But man, people spend a, it all comes from a place of love, but there's a lot of debate about these three different animated adaptations. So I guess where do you stand on the 1997 25-episode rendition of the story? Well, um, that was uh, the the anime TV series of Berserk was my introduction to Berserk. So it was good enough to inspire me to pick up the books and also see all the other movies that came afterwards just because of my fan curiosity in the series. Uh, but um, I think the 97-98 uh, the uh, anime series was excellent. Um, there are anime series that I would point to as maybe more brilliantly animated, but the 
production design, the music choices, even though there are very few pieces of music, they really make the most of it. The opening uh, and closing credits are particularly good as well. Like the, I got to the point where I was watching the opening and closing credits in their entirety every single time I watched an episode because I just love the choices so much. The uh, Whoever um, edited the animated series uh, together, um, what they do is they will have a minimum of retelling of the previous episode, and then they will start into that uh, that rock uh, opening um, with Guts's eye just like you know zooming zooming into it. And he's, you know, he's sort of superimposed on fire. And you're like, why is he so angry when you're watching it? <laughs> that's, that's, you're the, like, that's like, should be the subtitle for the whole series. Why is he so angry? Because, <laughs> yeah, Guts yeah, why is, is this thing called? He likes to scream. Yeah. Griffith! Griffith! Yeah, yeah man. It's, um, it's, uh, I think it's, it's really awesome. I, I think that you can see the budgetary constraints a little bit in the, uh, in the 97, 98 series. But, um, you know, overall, I give it a 9 out of 10. I think there are very few... Uh, misses to it. They omit one or two things that I would consider pretty important uh, from the manga series. Um, but uh, most of them, I understand the creative decision to leave those out because they mostly apply to the arcs that come afterwards, which obviously they didn't animate. So the, if they had to take out something, they they took out the they, the Skull Knight is one of the main things. Yeah, yeah. Skull Knight's such a massive character. And also for me, one of my only knocks against the 1997 adaptation is the very end of the very last episode wrapping things up. Because obviously in the manga, as Griffith has become a member of the God Hand and they've sacrificed all their friends and it looks like things are going to end very poorly for Guts and Casca, the Skull Knight basically rips through a dimensional hole, comes in, takes on the God Hand, saves them and takes them back and prevents them from being sacrificed, which is a big giant hole because when you're watching the 97 show, suddenly it just shows Guts putting on his arm and picking up the big sword and it's kind of walking away. It's like... Well, that was an abrupt kind of ending. I was like, there's no, there's no more. I just couldn't believe there wasn't more story. And especially, yeah. it was especially frustrating because the last few episodes had been so powerful and so overwhelming. Basically, from the time that Griffith finds, what do you call it, a behelet? Or what do you call those little necklaces with the face? When, from the time he finds the behelet yeah. in the stream and you have the, the solar eclipse and all these undead rising, from that point up through the end, it's some of the most riveting animation that I've ever seen in terms of like the story and the emotions but most of my knowledge of animated movies from Japan comes from the features. I haven't actually watched that many shows, except for like shows like Voltron when I was a little kid. Mm. It was the first, so I, I guess it was a little, not jarring, but I, I could definitely tell the difference between a TV show, anime, versus something like Ninja Scroll or Ghost in the Shell, where the animation's on a very, very high level of production value. So you can't go in expecting to see Akira-level greatness from a, from a TV show. It's just on a different scale. Correct. Uh, yeah, I agree 100%. Um, and um, yeah, I know exactly what you mean when it comes to Ninja Scroll. Um, right. So if you if you have sort of lowered visual expe expectations with Berserk, I think you'll be very happy with it as uh, like an introduction to the series. Um, although, of course, I think that reading, if I could go back in time and tell myself to expose myself to Berserk in one way, I would say read the manga from the start, and uh, and that should be the, the finest introduction you could have. But it's very time-consuming. There's a lot of volumes, um, 
and the anime series is really only a 13 hour investment um which yeah, is a 25 lot of episodes like 25 minutes a pop and they're readily available on youtube you can watch and there's pretty pretty decent transfers so you can go on right now for free and get the entire golden age arc in its entirety and it's a very satisfying experience from start to finish apart from a few quibbles over things that are missing and, and so on and so forth yeah very minor um very minor missing pieces but uh but yeah, like you said, uh, the the, de- the denouement is about five seconds. <laughs> There's this huge climax, and I love uh, when the eclipse happens and the God Hand appears. Uh, further to your point, um, it's almost like time literally slows down. And uh, you know, I love this uh, literary uh, device uh, that you know Homer uses in the Odyssey. Encountered it many times. Like when really important events happen. The, the way the, 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 the prose is written out is instead of like, you know, one hour, two hours, three hours each paragraph, it's, you know, 10 seconds. Um, so uh, it, it really um, puts uh, guts through the, through the absolute ringer uh, during that, that, whole, uh, that whole event. And, um, and then, yeah, it seems like in the, in the TV series he escapes because he gets so mad that he can free himself from it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the actors portraying these characters, because in the 97 version, Casca's voiceover, because that's my first exposure, I'm in love with this version of Casca. For me, that is the version of Casca on the screen. And this might be heresy, but I think Casca's my new favorite like sexual icon in animation, like more than Jessica Rabbit, more than like uh, Chitara and the Thundercats. Like There are a lot of great uh, sexual icons in animation history. Casca is so fucking cool and so badass. She's a this warrior woman who's the only female member of the Hawks, and she's had to earn it every step of the way, and she's now in a position to command. And I love like little scenes, especially in the 1997 version. I was re-watching the f- finale last night. When they first arrive in this demonic hellhole, everybody's freaking out. They're worried about, they think they're dreaming. They don't know what's going on. And she immediately starts saying, look, like if you start getting emotional, it's not going to help kind of browbeating everybody into submission and exerting some discipline. And you have this cutaway where Guts looks at her and he's like, wow, like she's so strong. She's so powerful. He's like, they're in the middle of this terrifying situation and Guts is just overwhelmed with love and admiration for this tough chick they've all been uh, serving with. Mother of God! If I'm not mistaken, weren't we just riding across a grassy plain? Or were we all dreaming the same dream about a grassy plain? Or have we all died? Gone to hell without knowing it? Oh God, Commander, tell me I'm dreaming. Calm yourself! Calm myself? You want me to calm myself at a time like this? I said quiet! That goes for everyone! Panicking is not going to help this situation! If you allow the enemy to shake you, you are dead before you can draw your sword! So stay close and stay focused! Guts, get Brynith on your horse. Right. No one gets left behind. Stay tight. So strong. She's incredible. Yeah, uh, Casca is a fantastic character. Very well imagined. Um, You know, it's obviously this is a work of fiction, but I I think that she seems very realistic within this world uh, that somebody like this could exist. You know, when you see her without her clothes on, you can see that she's very ripped and muscular. And, um, you know, she she has it all. You know, she's got uh, great fighting skills. Like you said, great leadership skills. She's probably, aside from Griffith, uh, the person in the series with the best leadership skills. Yeah, Guts has during- none. Guts 
leads by right. example, and people are inspired by how much ass he can kick. But he can't lead an egg. He just he just you send him you turn him loose and let him do his thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Guts is. Um, he is a babe in the woods when it comes to making friends, leading people. Like those are all skills that he learns slowly through the Golden Age arc. And uh, I think the way the uh, the anime series is edited, you see that progression very slowly. And and also, like you said earlier, you see guts working out a lot. Like he's just like swinging a sword around with logs attached to it for extra weight. Um, and I love that. I, you know, you, you hardly ever see that in Hollywood movies. Yeah, he doesn't get bitten by a radioactive spider. He doesn't have an alien give him a magic ring. Guts becomes a badass by training. He's just a little boy who, I guess, like, his origins are so terrifying and so depressing, but he's basically raised by a band of mercenaries that are, like, selling him off to soldiers to rape him. It's just, it's as gross and as horrible and depressing as humanly possible, but along the way, he just keeps getting stronger and stronger and stronger. He's practicing and practicing, and eventually, he can pretty much kick anyone's ass. And, and if you, someone beats him, he's probably going to come back a year or two later that much better because he just keeps improving his skills throughout the entire saga. Exactly. Uh, and uh, yeah, like I said, I think there's a, there's an existential through line. Um, definitely, uh, Mira either was uh, obsessed with Conan the Barbarian from a few years before or was a big fan of Nietzsche. Um, but um, Guts is, is that type of character, the, the Superman uh, that uh, builds on experience. That which doesn't kill him makes him stronger, and he just barely doesn't die many times and just keeps getting stronger and stronger. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about some favorite scenes, favorite moments from the 1997, because I, for me it gets a little blurred because I was reading the manga, I was watching the show, I was watching the movies and watching the later ones kind of all at once, and I've essentially I've seen the Golden Age story now in three different ways in a very short period of time. So I want to make sure that I can kind of keep them all, and they're all in their separate columns. But as I mentioned before, I really like the voice acting in the 1997. I think I'm most attached to those actors, especially the actors playing Griffith, Guts, and Casca. When I'm reading the manga, I hear their voices. But what are your some of your uh, favorite scenes and moments and lines from this season? Man, yeah, I agree with you 100%. The, the, the vocal performances are fantastic. Uh, this is one of the few animated series where the English dub is actually as fun to watch, as cool as watching the Japanese dub with subtitles. Um, so the, the voice actors in this show, at least the three mains, are fantastic. Um, but yeah, uh, my, the, the line that really cuts to my heart in, uh, in the anime series is right before Guts is fighting the hundred men. Um, I love that scene. <laughs> yeah, it's him and and a recently recovered Casca um, in the middle of the wilderness, and they're facing death. And uh, Guts is internally realizing that maybe he loves Casca, uh, and he chooses a moment of self-sacrifice at that moment. Like he says, "Get out of here! Like I'll hold him off." you know, go back to Griffith. And what is brilliantly, how he brilliantly illustrates this is um, Guts equates her to a sword, um, which is, of course, the most important thing in his life. Like that, <laughs> right? I mean, he he's a very simple guy. Like he knows how power, like a sword is his difference between life and death. So he compares her to a, a sword and he says, you're a sword, a sword belongs in its scabbard. Go back to your scabbard, go back to Griffith. Um, and uh, I, I'm getting choked up right now, just just re reciting it in my head. 
um, but it's one of the few quiet moments that I think are pillars of, of plot in, in the anime series. Because Casca's Pers- ready to fight to the death right alongside him, even though she's coming off of a horrible fever, and the fever is what got her in trouble in battle in the first place, and she fell off a cliff, and they, anyway, they've spent all this time kind of bonding and recovering in a cave. Of course, bonding with Casca means that she's going to frequently punch you in the face for saying or doing the wrong thing. She's a big fan of punching guts in the face, or punching them in like open wounds or injuries. So she's, she's always punching them, but it all comes from a place of love and mutual admiration and respect but she's she's a she's a tough girl but man that's when guts goes from being a total badass to living legend because he quite literally just arrows being fired on all sides just holds off a band of a hundred men while casca runs away and finds griffith and the rest of the band of the hawk and brings them back and that's when he really starts to ascend to a, a new stage in his career because when he first joins one of the main reasons he joins is because Griffith kicks his ass. Griffith in single combat says, look, if I, if I beat you, you're, you're coming to work for me. And they throw down, and Guts gets whooped. But by much later in the series, after that fight with the 100, when Guts and uh, Griffith throw down, Guts beats him in a stroke. So you, you see this evolution of him. He's not just a badass. He just he keeps getting better, a little, a little bit better all the time. So that it becomes realistic that he can throw down with one of the acolytes later on down the road. Right. I mean, uh, yeah, I love the, uh, the, the, the circular nature of the, the duel between Guts and Griffith. Um, that, uh, yeah, exactly as you described, like, you know, Griffith is individually a stronger fighter at the beginning, and that's why Guts grudgingly accepts his command and joins his group. Um, but by the end, I mean, you've seen him training for the whole, the whole series. They, they do it fairly subtly, but you do see him training a lot while you see Griffith doing politics with the nobles and sitting around and being courteous and all that stuff. So he's getting social skills. Like if this were D&D or if this were a, a video game, he'd be leveling up his social skills. Absolutely. He's working on Dark Souls. We work on like personality or like, or not, actually, is there a person? I can't remember if there's a personality stat in Dark Souls or not. But obviously in D&D would be a charisma. But it's a weird thing with like D&D, it's really hard to level up your ability scores once you've rolled your character. Like they kind of get locked. In, and that always frustrated me that it was so difficult to find ways to enhance unless you found like a tomb of something that would help you like raise your constitution by one or whatever the case might be. But obviously when it comes to dark souls, you go out and fight stuff and you can apply your souls wherever you want. If you want to increase your intelligence or your wisdom or your strength or whatever, you can slow but surely work on certain areas. And obviously guts is a, he's a strength build. He wants that high right. strength. He wants strength 50. He wants to find like a nice weapon with S scaling so you can do maximum damage when he goes into, goes into combat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so so uh, when they uh, when those two duel again, you know, even though you're kind of on the edge of your seat, going, How, "How's it going to turn out this time?" You know, surely guts can't win because then he's out of the group. Um, but guts wins, and um, he leaves the group, and it's an incredible seismic shift in the story, uh, one of many uh, <laughs> that come that come thereafter. Boston, the relationship between these two characters is so complex because Griffith wants a kingdom. And he likes having Guts as a soldier and as a friend and as an ally, but he also likes him in a almost servile position. And when Guts, but Guts wants to be his friend and wants to be his ally, but wants to be a friend and ally as an equal and feels like he needs to kind of go off on his own in order to really prove himself. But because Guts leaves the group, it proves to be Griffith's undoing where he deliberately sabotages his own life 
by having sex with the daughter of this king, which sends his entire career and life into a downward spiral. He gets imprisoned. He gets horribly mutilated and tortured for a year. They're, they're peeling off parts of his skin. They sever the tendons in his arms and his legs. They cut out his tongue. I mean, Griffith goes from being, I mean, he's beautiful. He's like Apollo. He's this stunningly almost, like, what do they call it when you're, um, male anti androgynous he's like this androgynous figure yeah. where he's like he's almost like like the knight of flowers in the game of thrones where he's just inc- and this incredibly beautiful guy whereas guts is very rugged and very manly and so on and so forth but you see this angel just get completely destroyed to the point where he shriveled down to nothing and of course his necklace gets torn from him and thrown aside and it's not until he gets reunited with this necklace that his really dark fate and destiny really becomes clear to the reader and the viewer but here you also have casca who loves punching and fighting and fucking guts, but she also has a lot of loyalty to Griffith. I mean, Griffith found her as a little girl. She was about to be raped, and he threw down a sword to her and said, if you have something worth protecting, take up the sword. And from that point on, she trained herself to be like the ultimate total badass working within his band. And just the intensity of these three three relationships, like this love triangle, that's what makes it so different and so special because shock value is only really shocking if you love and adore the characters and really care about their welfare and seeing Griffith's transformation from this because it's been so eerie for so long he hasn't said a word he's just looking off into the distance he can't he can't even speak and suddenly he begins this transformation into this demon and it's just it's so you feel you feel this enormous betrayal as he starts just as all of his men including Casca and Guts get marked and they are, they are, their fates are sealed, and just an entire dimension seems like be like made of like mouths and monsters just start systematically eating and destroying and tempting. I mean, it's just fucking insane. It, it is. It is. It's really hard to believe when it happened. But this is the this is the uh, the key to to almost all good writing. Uh, I mean, all the signs are there in the series. It's just that you don't want to see them. Like you see Griffith. Uh, via his appearance and his actions he is building everybody up around him but he keeps saying throughout the series this is my dream and i don't respect anyone who doesn't have their own dream that's just as powerful and that's why guts i think becomes so emotionally important to to griffith uh, besides the fact that he's the best fighter in the hawks um he is the one guy who isn't dependent on on griffith so he has griffith's respect especially when he beats him in the duel towards the, uh, the, the last quarter of the, of the anime series. Um, and I think uh, much like uh, my, you know, the other day my therapist uh, mentioned um, that episode of Star Trek where Captain Kirk uh, gets divided up into two characters. Oh, that's one a great that's episode, sort of, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and neither one can really be the captain. You know, uh, one guy is just basically a good guy is looking out for his crew, but he has no... No, uh, uh, you know, fortitude for for carrying out commands, and the other is just like this self-serving, command-driven dude that, uh, that just wants. Yeah, it's like the uh, you know the the ego and the um, and the id in in Freudian terms. But uh, I think that that Griffith has kind of uh, in Berserk, he's become dependent on guts for his um, you know for his completeness, and when guts leaves. Griffith is destroyed uh, emotionally, and that's why he um, he gets into it's into, into trouble with the princess. Yeah, and then not only does he get himself in trouble with the princess, 
every single one of the members of the band of the hawk who recently they're like on a like they've been fast tracked for nobility and like this life of luxury and ease of all the everything they've been working for toward and suddenly they find themselves surrounded by people who were their former friends and allies just launching clouds of arrows and it's up to Casca for a year just to try to keep them intact and keep them keep them alive. So Griffith not only throws his own life away, he throws the life of his friends away. And no one really seems to recognize and they're looking after him and they're changing his bandages. And they, they, they hope they'll find a way to restore him and bring him back to full health and vigor. And they, that's when they chase him out to this, this stream where this army of undead is waiting and just the entire world changes all around them. And it's just, yeah, their, their fate is sealed at that moment. But the, when it comes to creature design, I feel like we live in a world where so many movies and comics and shows, they all feel horribly derivative and they're copying things they admire. The creature design in this world is so bananas and so insane. Like one guy's running along thinking he's dreaming or having a nightmare and he sees this astonishingly hot girl and he's like, whoa, what's going on? Like, who's this girl? And he runs up and he starts like kind of, you know, getting like, he starts like motorboating and having a fine time. But then we see it's just this enormous, disgusting, like asymmetrical monster that just happens to have a pair of tits. <laughs> he's, he's falling <laughs> for her. But I love right. the design of the God Hand where one of them, Clearly designed by uh, or inspired by one of the Cenobites with like the chattering teeth, but he's got this big exposed brain. Then you've got the astonishingly hot girl who just rises up out of the landscape like a mountain with these like, you know, tentacles for hair and these giant wings. Just each one of them just is so stunning and so cool and so terrifying. It just I've, I just found myself completely enthralled as they all emerge from the landscape. Dude. Uh, yeah. I mean, it. Right. The, I think the, one of the things I love about it is the Eastern influence in Mira's art, and uh, which obviously translates to the, uh, all the animated versions of Berserk, um, that are, are all these monsters that I'm totally unfamiliar with. Uh, and I think that um, I'm sure many of them are his own creation, but uh, a lot of them come from Japanese mythology and really obscure folk tales and stuff that he knows that I don't. Um, but uh, it's very, I think the animated series is very clever in revealing sort of Western supernatural entities for brief periods throughout the drama. Uh, and, and you kind of forget about them. Like, you know, there's a, an encounter with uh, Nosferatu Zod. Love him. And yeah, obviously, he's, he's awesome. Yeah, great character. Very similar to Guts, actually, but evil. Um, and uh, and thrill and when then, he finds someone who can actually hurt him. That might be the f- most fun moment in the entire story is when Guts and Griffith side by side take him on where for a brief shining moment these two total badasses are working as a unit and Zod is just blown away by how he's found not one but two warriors that are capable of injuring him something he hasn't encountered for centuries and it's just such a because given all the heartache that comes later it's a beautiful scene with Guts and Griffith working harmoniously right and one of the many things that builds up the tragedy of the of the final third of of the golden age arc is is knowing how powerful those two are together um because you know they can conquer the world yeah, they're Lennon they and McCartney <laughs> right <laughs> exactly in so many ways um but uh but yeah, it's um, it's it's really a tremendous uh, a tremendous achievement. Um, but uh, but yeah, Nosferatu Zod appears. You know that a creature like that can exist. That even the characters say it several times. Uh, but obviously, it does. Uh, and then it's gone. And then we're back to drama, romance, politics. Yeah, most of it just feels like medieval warfare. The armor design's exquisite. We see sieges. We see all these fascinating sieges and brilliant, you know, onslaughts on castles, but it is grounded. It's mundane. It's it's swords and shields and bows and arrows and heroism and strategy. And in the in the background, in the backdrop you have all this like this hint of horrible things to come. 
And then after the golden age, we have this totally changed landscape where demons and undead prowl the landscape. And I, I love that transformation. You, you truly are seeing the end of an era before an era of darkness. Right, right. And uh, in that way, it, um, it reminds me a lot of A Song of Ice and Fire, uh, where, you know, magic is slowly creeping back into the world. Um, that happens in Berserk as well. And um, yeah, uh, beautifully, beautifully handled. Well, let's talk a little bit about the 2012-2013 trilogy of movies made from the same story. It's, it's a weird thing where when I was watching it, I, tried, I watched the 1997 first, and then I focused on the 2016 because I knew it was going to be fresh material, fresh ground, and I didn't want to see two versions of the same story so quickly back-to-back, even though I was reading the manga at the same time. So I was just totally, completely immersed. Uh, what would you say are the key distinctions between the trilogy adaptation versus the show from the late 90s? Well, one uh, really cool thing about the trilogy um, adaptation uh, is that it's currently streaming on Netflix. Hell yeah. Um, yeah, it's All right, three ready to go. See, so yeah, YouTube for the 97 and Netflix for the movies. Right. Um, so it's easily accessible to everybody. It's also a smaller time investment. I guess it's only about four or five hours yep. um, to, to see the whole thing. It suffers from being condensed to you know less than half of the length of the anime series. But um, they do hit all the main points. And actually, they spliced back in um, Guts's sexual abuse when he was a, a little kid, which I think is super important to the story because how he relates to everybody depends on that. And his sexual dysfunction and rage when he's falling in love with Casca. I mean, when they were their first sexual experiences together are really rough for him because he's never had sex with a woman ever. And so he's having all these horrible flashbacks of being abused as a child. And he's, it's hard for him to even relate to her sexually and so on and so forth. And it's a crucial part of his origin. Yeah, I, I think that that, that uh, theme is handled super maturely in, in the comic, very realistically. Uh, and, um, you know, it, it is covered uh, visually in, the, uh, in the, the three movies that are on Netflix. Um, it's a little obscure because obviously uh, it's... I, I, it's not. It can't, they can't show X-rated stuff like they can in the manga. Well, I mean, the manga takes the sex to delirious heights. I mean, I think it's volume nine where Guts and Casca really get down, and it's like, wow, all right, this is like thirty pages of some of those beautiful, loving drawings of you know hand-drawn sex you you will ever come across. No pun intended. <laughs> yeah, uh, readers, readers of Berserk, beware. Um, in addition to being extremely violent, it also has explicit sexual content, definitely X-rated content. So you know, be be ready for that. Uh, when or if that's something you actively seek out, like get ready, because like you know it's there. Like everything you want to see is there. I mean, it's like it's one of the things where, like I said before, I I enjoy finding content where both in terms of emotion and horror and sex and all that stuff, where they just gets taken to the craziest extreme imaginable or even possibly surpassing it. The manga of Berserk definitely delivers, but I think the trilogy of movies probably emphasizes the sex more than the 1997 show. It, there, it's kind of teased and hinted. You might see some boobies and that sort of thing, but the yeah. trilogy of movies definitely has like actual sex scenes that were missing from the original show. Yeah, I agree. I was actually uh, pretty shocked to find that, that uh, the last two movies are available on Netflix because I don't know if there's any other content like that uh, on the channel. Gaspar Noé's Love was on there for a while, which is obviously that. very explicit. Nymph, the uncensored like uh, director's kind of Nymphomaniac was there for a while. So every once in a while they have something like that, but it's pretty rare. Yeah, um, but yeah, it's it's pretty intense. Like you said, um, get ready for uh, for a visual 
overload, uh, but it's never gratuitous. Uh, the uh, the when the the super hardcore sex scenes happen, it is completely for plot development. Oh, it feels um, totally organic to the story. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh, some uh, might but, say. Like, I mean, I guess there's some scenes that are just. I guess some people just they assume every movie is going to be like inside out like a nice or finding nemo like some pixar movie and so some people just have a very specific idea of what, what the role of animation is and uh if they sit down and show berserk this trilogy to their kids <laughs> it's gonna be quite an adventure yeah don't don't do that <laughs> because um. the posters are kind of innocent if you were just scrolling through the thumbnails right. on netflix like oh animation this looks like swords and adventure and fun for the whole family and just berserk goes to these very different places yeah I, I hope that anybody listening to this podcast listens to the whole thing and uh <laughs> not just the first 10 minutes and then decides to sit their family down in front of berserk but um but yeah it's uh, it's for adults uh, i mean it's uh, <laughs> it's got adult themes um it is insanely violent and uh exciting to to watch um so uh it it um stirs the emotions in the the 14 year old kid in me but it's also something best handled uh with um with mature goggles on. Quick question <laughs> about nudity in Japanese pop culture, because I've always heard conflicting stories about what's allowed, what's not. I know like certain times, like uh, pubic hair has been considered taboo, even if the the scene is really wild and uh, intense. And I've noticed that with sometimes if you find like some pornography online from Japan, they'll have certain parts of the the image blurred out, even if it's obvious what's going on. But I noticed with the trilogy of movies. There's full frontal pubic hair, full frontal like men's dinguses on display. It's like, all right, well, this is different because in the 2016 and 17 version, guys will walk around nude, but it's like, they're like a like a, a Ken doll from Barbie, where there's just there's just nothing downstairs. So and I, so I just got a little confused about the inconsistencies when it comes to censorship. Yeah, that's a really good question, and uh, I'm not sure if I'm the right dude to answer it, but uh, I do think that it was once exactly what you described, like they would pixelate um, private parts and uh, otherwise they can show everything else. Um, but that's changed recently where now they can show full frontal nudity and sometimes uh, in in action, in sexual action, so to speak. Um, and that's what you see in the Berserk uh, 2012 to 13 movies that are on Netflix. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's like, I don't know if they ever show an erection, but they definitely show a lot of male full frontal nudity r routinely throughout it. So I was like, oh, okay, this is quite different because as I, I saw that last and I just assumed anything new would have the most uninhibited rules, but you definitely see a lot of Ken dolls walking around in the most recent iteration, which I watched on Amazon. I was able to buy the uh, those two seasons right there. Oh, yeah. Um, well, the, um, the, the movies, the Netflix movies, um, I would – probably rate at a like a 7.5 out of 10 um i yeah. think that it's, it's i prefer the 97 being, but there's certain yeah. scenes that they do really well exactly and you know bigger budget for the music um a lot of things are more expensive about the movies but i think the the missing scenes uh hurt it a bit um and uh sometimes like the this cg my, this is just my personal opinion but bringing the cg into the animation style um sort of detracts i think from berserk a little bit because I prefer the uh, 2D traditional cell animation as well. Yeah, because of the period. Like I think the period lends itself to hand-drawn animation. Um, although the, the CG is brilliant, um, you also know, just in the in source the material, series. everything's hand-drawn and illustrated. So it's just a, a perfect harmony between the adaptation and the source material. Whereas, yeah, if, if it was 
It's just when, when you want to see more beautiful illustrations like, like, like the original manga. Yeah, exactly. Correct. Um, and, uh, and then if, um, if you want to talk about the, uh, the, the 2016 or the 20, yeah, 2016 the, and 2017, which is very divisive. And, but, but there's one last note though, about the two, about the trilogy of movies. I think the music choices for the show are way stronger than the music choices for the movies. I mean, something about the, that opening and closing song for the show from the nineties, it just makes you want to, it makes you want to binge 50 episodes, not 25. <laughs> and I thought the music choices for the th- three, three films were underwhelming, but I did enjoy seeing them. Like, I don't think Casca's voice acting is as strong. I think she's drawn better in the 97, but I don't regret watching that trilogy. I think the trilogy is totally worth watching if you're a diehard buff. I mean, I've seen people write up a lot of like berserk guides in terms of how to watch and how to read. And there's a lot of different points of view about when you should dive into all of them. I don't know if there's any one particularly right way. Cause like I just was, I was consuming all of it so quickly. I, it was all kind of just overlapping and falling on top of itself. And I still had the time of my life and there was no real rhyme or reason to how I did it. So even if it's complete total chaos, you're still going to have <laughs> fun reading and watching all of this stuff. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and, uh, you know, you're not the only one, uh, that, uh, was really inspired by the music of the, uh, the 97 98 series uh because there are metal bands that i discovered um in the research for this this episode uh there's a band called uh battle beast uh and then the guitarist from battle beast split off um and formed his own group and um these are uh heavy metal bands that have berserk oriented songs and albums that are available so i haven't actually heard any of them yet but uh i will (laughs) All right, well, let's talk about the most divisive part of this franchise because I've seen there are a lot of YouTube videos singing the praises of the most recent animated adaptation, and there are a lot of YouTube videos utterly decimating. And I know, I guess if there's a schism in the Berserk fan community, it is about this most recent version. So ease us into the water. How did this come about? Where does it pick up in the story? Like, just give us the um, kind of the the overview of this latest version. Well, um, it's, uh, I believe it's a, 26 episode series of Berserk after the Golden Age arc. Um, so it takes us through 
abbreviated versions of the Conviction arc, the Hawk of the Millennium arc, and the Fantasia arc, um, which is pretty much where the manga series is at right now. Yeah, where they're basically sailing off to an island in order to try to save Casca, restore her mind, because she's been rendered completely insane by the the horror she experienced at the end of the Golden Age arc. Right, so I think... um, the good points of um, of the, uh, the the most recent anime series um, are that you get to see uh, Guts' character development after the eclipse, um, where he's completely emotionally destroyed by the loss of his friends, um, and then he starts to become responsible for Casca, who's been driven insane, and slowly starts uh, making it possible for her to get herself back together. And it's a very long road. But um, he does eventually make progress, uh, and I don't think that's really obvious in the most recent anime series, but um, in the manga, it's a lot more obvious that she's getting her shit back together um, and becoming Casca again, um, which is really exciting, um, but you have to wait a really long time for it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I kept waiting. I was like, all right, so now she's going to turn a corner, and she's going to be Casca again and start whooping, whooping all kinds of ass, and yeah, I was left a little frustrated by this dangling uh, plot line at the very end, where, where she's still just kind of, uh, she'd been re- reverted back to like a state of like almost like total innocence and naivete. Yeah, so uh, yeah, I, I think, um, yeah, the bad news with the current anime, animated series is it's kind of weird if you uh, see it on its own without seeing the Golden Age arc first, because none of Guts' wounds, none of uh, the, the what is what he's tortured by will be obvious. Oh, I think um, it'd be, be utterly going... incomprehensible. Like you, you would have yeah. no idea what the fuck is going. Like you might enjoy the occasional fight scene and the abundant nudity in the the first season at least, but it would it would have none of the emotional resonance so like just the idea of like what is this scar on his neck that's always bleeding yeah. what does this symbol mean because he's he's been he's still marked he and Casca are both still marked as sacrifices which means that they're basically plagued by spirits and demons trying to kill them or possess them everywhere they go like guts now lives a life of total war and of course it's because he's guts he's like well, that's awesome i'll just kill everything that comes after me and yes like he just totally leans into the fact that every waking or unwaking moment from now on is going to be devoted exclusively to killing things right um yeah it he he essentially has an emotional regression uh at the eclipse like he goes back to his tortured childhood self except of course he's a, a six foot seven dude with insane combat skills so he his M- minus solution an exactly, arm yeah Right. Which doesn't like seem his, to slow him down at all. <laughs> right. He just becomes more determined um, and, uh, you know, almost like he's um, he's uh, saddled with these limitations and the limitations become his he, – he, he strives to see how far he can go with those limitations. It's, it's like how sometimes we, we get defined by, uh, by, you know, physical events or emotional events that happen in our lives and we rise above them and test ourselves against them. That's what's going on with Guts. So he cut off the arm himself. I mean, he was trying to save Casca. Casca is basically being sexually abused by Griffith after he's transformed into a member of the God Hand, and he's got a demon hanging on to him by his arm, and he's just like, fuck it, and just boom, 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 rip, snap, pop, cut, and just tears himself free so that he can try and save Casca. I mean, it's it truly... I mean, it's as, it's as guts of a moment as guts has in the, in the entire story. And, of course, it just gives him a perfect opportunity to get a black iron armor hand that fires arrows and cannonballs, like, you know, at, at a whim. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, but, yeah, the, uh, the latest anime series, um, it does sort of show you glimpses of 
Guts's development beyond um, the violent individualist, like in his care for Casca, and then in the second half of the series, he starts gathering followers around him, so he starts becoming a leader again. Um, uh, mostly unintentionally at first, but eventually he confronts those parts of himself and decides to protect uh, those people as well. So he, he kind of becomes more of a hero, um, but he keeps kind of lapsing back into the anti-hero mode. And a lot of these members of this band, they're no slouches. They can kick some serious ass themselves. They're great at fighting or they're great at magic. And it's not like he's just leading a bunch of helpless people around. He starts recruiting and accumulating a really effective fighting force. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, they're together. They're very well-rounded. Um, and Guts rarely... Um, well, that's the beauty of the storytelling. I, I think that um, reading the manga, it's pretty obvious that Guts appreciates them. But in the animated series, the latest animated series, um, it's not. Uh, he's just sort of a loner that uh, has these people following him, and he kind of tolerates them uh, to get Casca where she needs to go. Yeah, I, th- I mean, having just watched it, I have to think, I think the first season of this latest iteration was way stronger than the second. Second season, Guts almost becomes like immaterial to the plot in a lot of ways, and he kind of disappears for large sections at a time, and you really start to feel like, oh, they're covering entire volumes in a scene. It felt very truncate, truncated and abbreviated, and I felt like there was so much I was missing, and it just it felt rushed. It had none of the emotional weight. But that 2016 season, I did like that arc. It wasn't as satisfying as the Golden Age arc, but at least felt like an arc. I I could see a beginning, middle, and end, and characters had, there's payoffs to certain aspects of their storylines and that sort of thing. So I was kind of sold on it, and I have to admit, the opening theme song of the 2016 season, I really liked it. It's like this crazy death metal, and I don't even listen to death metal, but I found myself like playing air drums and banging to the beat and (laughs) going nuts. I think the song for the second season sucked, and it, it it really didn't do it for me at all, so... Yeah, I'm really divided on this latest iteration. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, they kind of um, it's it sounds like sort of those melodic metal bands that were coming out of the woodwork in uh, in the 2000s, like uh, Nightwish and um, uh, Apocalyptica. Um, I, I mean, you're, you're talking to somebody who's almost a blank slate on all that, so I have no idea. But I, I felt I felt that uh, same same as you. Like I felt like it, it was a really good fit for for the series like that the series kind of screams for that um uh but uh, but anyway i i think that the the latest animated series i'd give it like a six out of ten um what if it was just the first season not the second season uh, if it was just the first season i think i'd boot it up to a seven um but still like recommend it only for fans of berserk like to you know get educated in the the rest of the cycles um it doesn't really stand alone, like you said. And, yeah, it's not and, the starting uh, point. It's not the gateway drug. And I know, like, just to reiterate what some of the hardcore Berserk fans have criticized about it, they hate a lot of the use of CGI. They hate just a lot of, like, the camera. There's a lot of just kind of slow, boring pan shots up and down, left to right, up and down. And it just feels a little rudimentary and amateur at times. It's just a yeah. different animated style. But the fight scenes are are glorious and the skull knight looks so damn cool and the nudity in the first season is just insane there's this crazy cannibalistic sex orgy that goes on a nightly basis out of this campfire where everybody's just running around and it's just it's completely utterly bananas and you have this giant goat head acolyte that's kind of the master of ceremonies and that stuff's just fucking insane and i think some of the darkest stuff in the entire berserk story 
or with these religious zealots, these religious zealots, let's just say if you've ever had a problem with the uh, like organized religion or like studying the Inquisition and things like that, you have these religious zealots that don't believe in demons, don't believe in magic, and they had this giant like purification torture chamber in their in their in their in their fortress where the most savage torture scenes of all time are depicted in this cartoon. And one person, just in order to get help for their sick or dying child, voluntarily subjects himself to being put into that room. And you see this dawning horror on their eyes. So some of those scenes I felt like were horrifyingly effective. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I would say like if uh, earlier um, manga was Kentaro Mura's inspiration for doing the earlier arcs of berserk like he draws in like in the series we're talking about like he draws more from classic uh art like uh, hieronymus bosch and and stuff like that like scenes of like uh jericho like uh awful torture dismembered heads and and like really horrific stuff that people were painting from life uh you know uh his historically um and he uses it all he kind of combines it all into this uh this anime yeah, what's the name of the, again of the kind of the big religious leader? I'm blanking on his name. Um, uh, Mosgus? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, he's a pretty yeah, formidable yeah. adversary, and I like those inquisitors that work for him. They have all these crazy exotic weapons, and when they're all together, they present a pretty formidable f threat to Guts. And I like watching how Guts' actions slowly but surely pull some of the faithful of that basically this community away from them to become his own followers because there's just a it just shows how complete, total, blind faith in one ideology can completely fail to take into account a changing landscape. And obviously, in this new changing landscape, there are these acolytes roaming the territory. There are demons and monsters all around. And it just seems wild to reject and deny the evidence that's staring you square in the face. So I thought that, that those ingredients of the plot in that first season were really interesting to follow. And I, I'm blanking on the name of the little kid, but the little thief who joins the group who's really good at throwing yeah. rocks and just wants to be guts and keeps trying to train and get better. I thought he was a, a really fun little interesting character. Yeah, Isidro. So yeah, so there's a lot of good stuff to enjoy. It's just, it doesn't have the legendary grand epic scope of the Golden Age story. Yeah, I, I think that well, one of the really cool themes in, um, in the entire uh, series of, of Berserk is the, um, the fact that is the appearance like guts really looks like a bad guy, um, from the beginning and through most of the golden age arc, like he, he looks villainous. Um, whereas Griffith looks very beatific, uh, you know, Angelic, innocent, like, yeah. yeah, like an angel. And if you look really closely at certain shots, um, uh, or, or certain panels in, in the manga, uh, the religion of Midland, where they're fighting, uh, where, where most of the Golden Age takes place, um, their image of um, a, a deific presence is sort of a bird-like entity, uh, or, or is it an angel, you know? But that design is incorporated into the design of the, of the hawks, and obviously, like you said, um, Griffith has this angelic appearance where he's you know so beautiful that people can't even believe he's a guy, a guy. i mean he's just uh in, insane um but uh, i think that dichotomy is great like nothing is exactly what it seems in, in this world and people cast their judgments immediately on sight um which is how a lot of people behave in real life it's funny that like guts even though guts is this just wild animal in a lot of ways when you're reading the golden age arc and seeing him as a young man and if you're used to him as the black swordsman already, he seems 
so innocent by comparison because first and foremost, he's intact. He's got both eyes, both arms, and his sword is smaller. As a younger man, he's still got the biggest damn sword on the battlefield, and he still can like take out ten guys at a, at a time. But it's kind of puny in comparison. You can tell he's not quite the black swordsman yet. And he kind of graduates, but by the time you get to the Black Swordsman era, the sword is so wide and so heavy, <laughs> so long. <laughs> but it makes it makes his journey that much more profound, seeing how he became this persona in stages. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and uh, yeah, not only do you see Guts's development um, in all the key moments, but also through flashback and uh, through the Golden Age arc, you see Griffiths and of course uh, Casca's uh, as well. Like those are the three main characters. Um, the other characters are really um, rather brilliant sketches. Uh, that yeah, they're fun little one-dimensional kind of stereotypes. Like Pippin's a really cool character. I actually got yeah. really sad in the 1997 cartoon when Pippin died because he sacrifices himself to give Casca time. And you just see in the distance this giant, towering hunk of a badass soldier just crumpling beneath the weight of just overwhelming odds as the demons descend upon him. I was like, oh my god, I fucking love that guy. Like, and, 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 mm. and he's gone. I know Pippin's Pippin's great. He even takes a, a blow to the face just so he can uh, uh, force guts to celebrate with the group uh, <laughs> earlier. So he clearly has heart. Um, and I think the fact that he hardly ever says anything in the series makes his death more tragic. Like you're like, God, I wish that guy had said more. Like now it's over, yeah. you know. Uh, and it's it's just one of those gut punches, uh, so to speak, <laughs> at the end of the Golden Age. Yeah, you really feel the loss of each individual character because it's not readily apparent initially that every single person down there is totally doomed like oh well they fought their way out of insurmountable odds a million times before they've taken castles that cannot be taken they've beaten armies that cannot be beaten you've just seen them do the impossible again and again and again but the moment the landscape changes around them their fates are sealed and 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 then you it's protracted and extended and you have to you really have to endure it for a really long time it's a couple of episodes or a couple of volumes it's not just like oh it's going to be a couple pages and boom they're gone you really have to live and breathe because they can't go anywhere so the demons really take their time there's no hurry they just kind of systematically pluck the wings off flies as griffith goes into this cocoon and to eventually emerge as this new being Oh, yeah, it's uh, man. That's just that's bringing it all back to me. It's it's insane. That that whole sequence is just uh, and yeah, and you are so emotionally invested in the characters at that point that you have to read on. Like even if you are not a horror fan, you've got to find out what happens to them. And it it's just this um, this level of disbelief. Like you're like this can't be the end of them. Like this they've got to find a way out of this. Um, but uh, it is. <laughs> so, well, just when you're just, rereading it or rewatching it, it just makes their earlier adventures that much more special. Like you really appreciate those moments where they do the impossible. I mean, their, their big thing is when they take this castle and they divide their forces, and they're basically like Griffith and Guts are luring this, this giant force in because it looks like they're like you know easy pickings. While Casca leads a raid on the castle. And suddenly this king turns around and sees at his castle, all the flags have been changed. He's like, what the fuck? And the yeah. entire castle is now in the possession of the band of the hawk. You're like, yes. Like that's like kind of their, their, their finest hour. Yeah. The, I mean, the battle tactics uh, in the golden age are awesome. Like they're, they're really cool original ideas uh, that uh, Griffith uses to beat his foes. He always outdoes himself. Like he always comes from somewhere in left field uh, and uses all his resources to make the events happen so that he can enact his plan. And as a viewer, you never quite know what he's going to do until 
right before it happens. Uh, and then you're that, that's another way to engage emotionally engage you in the the rise of Guts and Griffith and, and the band of the Hawk. And the level of detail is stunning as well. You look at all these individual characters from the weapon design to the armor design. There's so much variety. It's not like, oh, here's a thousand animated characters and they all have the exact same armor and uniform, the exact same weapon, and you're going to watch them scurry around. It's exquisitely detailed. And it's funny how the Japanese really had this really intense obsession with Western European medieval armor and weapons. And you see it in the Dark Souls games and you see it in a lot of different things where I love that hybrid of the Japanese sensibility in terms of the supernatural and the monsters and the style and like the giant weapons, but with a lot of images and details that are familiar to us from a Western point of view. And we've talked about this a lot on the podcast before. That's what makes Dark Souls so much fun is that that strange hybrid of completely different universes colliding together in the best way possible. And it's why I went through like a couple year phase where I just played Dark Souls 1, 2, and 3 over and over and over again. I just couldn't get enough of them. I finally came out on the other end of the tunnel and played like Sekiro Shadowstone twice. And right now, because I missed it at the time of the release, I'm playing Witcher 3, which is so fucking good. Uh, it's one of my all-time favorite games. Witcher 3, with all the DLCs and expansion packs and everything, is an incredibly satisfying experience. And I just, yeah, the last... I can't emphasize enough how much fantasy I've been consuming as of late. Between gaming and fantasy novels and comics and this show, it's been a really fun experience. But I started reading the Witcher books. I read the first collection of short stories. And I'm just having the time of my life. And as long as I keep coming across really, really cool stuff, there's no reason for this recent craze of mine to draw to a close. <laughs> I yeah, I, I have uh, I know of the, of the Souls games. Uh, I'm very attracted to them, but they are a little too hard um, for my 51 year old hands <laughs> to handle. The first uh, one you play is yeah. really challenging, whichever one it is. And once you know, once you get over the hump and learn how the games work then it makes it a joy. And then the other games, when you start them from scratch, are a lot more fun. But it's a strange thing where, as Martin Kessler says, in Dark Souls, your character doesn't level up, you level up. And it's just there's a little speed bump for every player. And when you get over that speed bump, it all becomes clear. And then you're, you're, you start craving the knowledge and the skills that allow you to thrive in those games. Yeah, I mean, I yeah, I agree. Uh, uh, and I mean, to, uh, to put another um, uh, metaphor with uh, video games, uh, I think that... You know, I was really shocked when Grand Theft Auto 3 came out, like uh, for the PlayStation 2, and um, how how much of a New York, like a classic New York feeling the um, the world had in, in that game. Well, uh, I thought Grand Theft Auto 3, I thought that was something, I thought it was number four that was in New York, when you played the Russian... Also, um, okay. yeah, also, but uh, but yeah, I found five's out that the only one I've spent a lot of time into. I bear I, I played three for like a five minutes, and I played four for a little bit, but it was five that really grabbed me. And that was definitely L.A. all the way. L.A. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, but um, I was shocked when I found out the designers of GTA Three were Scottish. Oh, <laughs> um, interesting. Surely there it's it's a development studio based in New York. Yeah, like yeah, they yeah. just shot everything around them. But uh, sometimes it takes like that sort of um, uh, nerdy love of another culture to really distill it down to the base elements. That's what I think Mira has done in Berserk. Like he loves this period in medieval Europe um, and has taken all the best parts uh, and put it into Berserk when when necessary. Uh, so. 
Yeah, I mean, the only I was thinking about the origins of, of that, and um, you know, the the only thing I can think of that maybe was going on in Japan at the time was the rise of zaibatsu culture. Um, these mega corporations like Sony, uh, which I've worked for three times, <laughs> um, but uh, uh, these corporations uh, were sort of cautionary tales. They got so big, and you know, uh, Japanese uh, uh, white collar workers their whole life uh, revolved uh, around the, the corporation so much they were sleeping at the office and working themselves to death. Uh, and I think um, as a guy who eventually published a 30-year-old series on his own, um, I'm just guessing that Mira might stand against that. Like he might be a bit of an individualist um, for a, a, a Japanese man. So Yeah, I mean, Guts uh, is the ultimate rugged individualist <laughs> in so many ways. Yeah. So he lends his sword to various causes, but in the end, yeah, Guts follows his own path. Yep. Uh, yeah, he's, he's, uh, he's the sword that's, that's hardened by the, uh, the anvil of life. Well, I look forward to continuing this journey. Like I said, I've already ordered a few more of the, uh, the manga. They're coming my way, and I'm going to slowly but surely, now that I'm not rushing to get prepared, because I got to a point where I was like, oh my God, I've got to watch like 30 hours of animation and I've got like five days to do it. I was like, shit. And so I kind of hurled myself into it bodily and uh, it was, I definitely felt like I wasn't getting to savor each, every, each and every little morsel. So now I'm looking forward to just enjoying it and relaxing and going through it one volume at a time. But before we start wrapping things up, when it comes to games, manga, animation, any other favorites that you want to give a shout out to that you think are deserving of some extra special love and attention? Because I, I love these opportunities on Wrong Real to talk about these topics, but I very rarely get a chance to do so. So I'd love to hear about anything that you think um, is along the same lines. If you're a fan of Berserk and you've you've exhausted Berserk and you're looking for new frontiers to explore, like what, what is on your to-do list? Yeah, um, you know, weirdly, I, I started seeking out other uh, anime after Berserk trying to find a similar experience, and I never really did. Um, but I have found it in the sub-genre of fantasy literature called Grimdark uh, I love fantasy. I Grimdark, hell yeah. Yeah, yeah we talked about... Um, yeah, you know, a couple of authors yeah, Joe uh, earlier. Abercrombie, his first one. I've got them right here. Uh, yeah, The Blade Itself is a great place to start. And Prince of Thorns by Mark Lawrence, I'd recommend. Uh, mm. R. Scott Backer, I really like. And obviously, George R. R. Martin. But yeah, there, there are a bunch of people out there that are really good. Yep, I think I think that, uh, you know, George R. R. Martin definitely, uh, Game of Thrones, or the Song of Ice and Fire, uh, rather, gives you the, the, the same feel, uh, the same depth of uh, Berserk during the Golden Age arc when they're, they're social climbing. Um, but uh, I'd also say uh, check out um, Beyond Redemption by Michael Fletcher, where um, all the characters are sort of these uh, psychotics um, with... Uh, abilities like supernatural abilities based on their mental illness <laughs> nice it's called beyond yeah. redemption yeah beyond I'm, gonna redemption. Go on, I'm gonna go on amazon and order that right now so boom, boom, that's boom. really cool yeah also if you like more of the the ground pounder like medieval soldier um there's a series called uh the black company by glenn cook uh that's been highly recommended to me i've got the first book Right Got here, it. ready to go. It's on my to-do list because every time I come across something that I really love, I end up accidentally hearing about like two or three others off to the side. And so I've got a long list of uh, fantasy novels that I'm, I'm planning on reading. But what I do to keep things fresh and exciting is I ping-pong back and forth between the different series because i found sometimes if you love something and you just rip right through it, three, four, five, six books in a row, you just don't 
do it justice or savor it to the degree that you like. And so I forced myself to stop after a great reading experience and read another series. Like recently I read the, um, the first of the Brandon Sanderson books and the Wheel of Time series. Cause I'd read all the Robert Jordan, but I'd never read the last three books by Brandon Sanderson. So I was like, you know, it's a thousand pages, but it would be a great palate cleanser from all those other crazy ass grimdark. Cause Brandon Sanderson's not grimdark. He's very kind of wholesome by comparison. But after you've, yep. read, if you've read a lot of grimdark in a row, it, loses some of the shock value. You can only handle with so much darkness before it starts to feel routine. So you gotta you gotta check out some other stuff. But yesterday I saw uh, um, James Gunn on Twitter talked about there's a, an animated show being made of something called Uzumaki, which he said was one of his all-time favorite uh, manga that he read. It's only three yeah. volumes. I've never read it, but I ordered it. And I'm really looking forward to checking that out. But he says it's it's, uh, it's horror manga, and apparently it's pretty hardcore. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. But um, yeah, Beyond uh, Redemption, I, I'm ordering the paperback. Add to cart, boom, boom, boom. Proceed to checkout. Um, yeah, so it's going to be in the mail, starting right now. All right. I just I love the fact that we live in an age where you can uh, sort of finish a thought and it's ordered and it's on its way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That it's fucking awesome. Um, but yeah. Uh, Uzumaki's great. I've I've read the um, the uh, uh, comics um, that it's based on, and it's a really uh, simple idea that is taken to Lovecraftian heights. I love um, Lovecraft. And it, yeah, it's a hundred percent a horror uh, read, but uh, definitely worth it. And I haven't heard of the uh, of the series, but um, I'll definitely check it out when it lands. Now, what are you working on right now that you'd like to plug in case people want to check out some of your your world travels or some of your prose or any past projects that you worked on in film, television, or video games that you're particularly proud of? Yes, sir. Um, Well, I'm going to be performing um, an unpublished work of mine of uh, a story of cosmic horror at uh, this event called Noir at the Bar in Seattle, Washington. Very cool. And uh, it'll be October 24th at 8 p.m. at the Alibi Room. If you're in town, um, please come check it out. You won't be disappointed. <laughs> and um, Are you going to cosplay uh, as Guts as you read it? Just come in with like <laughs> dragging an 800-pound sword behind you? It's interesting. You know, I, I challenged myself to write a story um, that was purely dialogue, like there's no prose in it whatsoever, to see if I could tell a story just in the lines of what the two characters uh, were saying. Uh, and um, that's what this is. So I, I got a friend of mine to come up there and read with me cool. uh, and, and play the other part. And um, so we're basically performing. It's basically like a short play. Uh, but um, but yeah, I would say the two, the two things, I, I write short stories, and the two things that Berserk fans would probably most be into that I've written uh, are my stories in uh, Year's Best Transhuman SF, um, and it's a story called Some Assembly Required, uh, very revenge-oriented, and um, also uh, I have a book called, um, oh, I have a story called uh, Kill Fee uh, in uh, an anthology called The Book of Blasphemous Words, and uh, both of those are available in digital or print on Amazon or anywhere else you buy books. Now, on your site, do you have links to the best places to find uh, some of your short stories and novels, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on my website, uh, I have um, an interview uh, that kind of talks about my highlights as a writer um, and uh, and as a, a, a manager. Um, but uh, uh, all the all the links are there, and that website is v h rodriguez. So it's V-H-R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z dot WordPress dot com. 
Beautiful. Well, I'll include a link to all that in the description for the episode, but I can't thank you enough for making this pitch. I, I, my fa- I say this all the time, but my favorite episodes are episodes that take me into completely, totally undiscovered, unexplored country, and it's even better when I just fall in love with what gets, uh, what I get exposed to. And Berserk is one of those things where it took me a little bit to, it's almost like learning how to play Dark Souls. It took me a little bit to really start to understand just what I was getting into. But man, when that aha moment took place, when it really clicked, I just could not fucking believe how utterly swept away I was by the story. It just wrecked me in the best possible way. So for that, I am in your debt. Same, same. And and yeah, like I said before, uh, man, I really, I just appreciate you and the show. And you've exposed me to so much good material uh, that uh, I think it's the least I could do. And you know, I, I got the idea, like one of one of my favorite guests on your show mentioned Berserk at some point, And you were just like, yeah, I'm not really sure what that is. Um, and I was at that point, I was just like, man, James would fucking love Berserk. <laughs> uh, so... All I had to do. I'm very predictable is, in that sense. <laughs> yeah, uh, do a ton of research and pitch it as a show. Um, but yeah, it was either uh, Martin Kessler or um, or Adam Rakoff, I think, that mentioned it. But gotcha. um, but it's in probably any case, Kessler. I'm glad this we definitely got seems like something Kessler has been like quietly studying and obsessing over for decades, and probably knows very well. Well, you are yeah. welcome to come back on Wrong Wheel anytime. I don't know if it's possible to cook up another topic as intense as berserk but um i can't remember you mentioned some other you mentioned a whole shitload of uh, possible topics but even possibly greek mythology so it wouldn't be a bad idea to do some uh, some greek mythology because there's so few good adaptations and it's just so frustrating to me but somebody who worked on god of war and likes these kinds of stories that could be a fun uh, topic to explore yeah uh sounds great i'll uh, i'll get to work on a couple of sketches and pitch them when i can beautiful now where can people find you on twitter and facebook etc if they want to talk more uh, my Twitter address is at Dime Store Caesar, so it's D I M E S T O R E C A E S A R. That's uh, Twitter and Instagram, and um, yeah, I'm on Facebook, but uh, I don't really use that for my writing. I just kind of use that to stay in touch with uh, my old uh, sharing record. baby pictures. Yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, but yeah, I'm just Victor H Rodriguez on Facebook. If you want to look me up in Seattle. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's where you can find me. Beautiful. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode at a bare minimum, go on YouTube, check out the 1997 berserk. But if, if you really want to treat yourself, start at the beginning with volume one and start working uh, just volume one through volume 14 of this story, I guarantee will be a singular reading experience. And if you're a lapsed comic reader like myself, or you only find yourself buying a couple comics a month now, cause you're frustrated by fi- your inability to find things you like. Berserk will remind you of why you love reading comics, probably more so than any comic you've read in the last 10, 20 years. So (laughs) brace yourself for a really cool experience. But remember to subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, rating, review, all that good stuff. You can find me on Twitter at Colbrax. Check out my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. And there's Wrong Real merch now available for sale. There's a link in the show notes below for T-shirts and coffee mugs. If you want to act like a caffeine-fueled maniac like yours truly, get yourself a Wrong Real coffee mug so you can drink your coffee in style. But can't thank you enough for listening. Really appreciate it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow.